0: This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX's The Bear. All episodes now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. Hello and welcome to One For The Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, and I hope by hearing each episode, they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. Since the launch of my podcast, I've also recently released a number one best-selling book called One For The Road, which can be purchased via Amazon covers my own personal story and also offers lots of valuable tips on how you too can learn to kick alcohol out of your life for good i really hope you enjoyed the show thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe share and leave a review our amazing sponsors for this season are tweak life do you want to make a positive change to your mental, physical or financial health and not sure where to start? Tweak Life have brought together all areas of well-being in a free, easy-to-use website. You can find their link in the show notes and on my bio via my Instagram, at Sober My guest today on One for the Road is an artist, author. And host of the brilliant podcast, Brave New Girl. In this interview, she talks exclusively how her relationship with alcohol changed over the years, especially when she was present during the Lockerbie air disaster, which later on left her with PTSD. It was a real joy to interview my guest on this episode today. So please welcome the lovely Lou Hamilton. So good morning, Lou. Welcome to One for the Road. And it's a real pleasure to have you on my show today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing really good, actually. I'm feeling um, a little bit smug because I went out last night and I know that if I'd have been drinking this morning, I would not have been feeling great. And uh, and I feel good. So yeah. I know
0: you uh, had a bit of a glitzy affair last night, I saw on your Instagram. Yeah, and I, I was... did the same. I went out to London yesterday and it was the Christmas vibe. Uh and and I like yourself would have felt absolutely awful. But the fact is we wouldn't be recording this anyway if we were
1: the two of us hung over. Oh God, it would been a nightmare.
0: <laughs> it would be awful. Um so I think uh, by now on season eight, everyone knows how this works and their life stories. And we had a brief chat before and uh, I found your story fascinating and I'm really pleased you agreed to share it with me. So we generally start at the beginning. So you can go back as far as you like, but the stage is yours. uh, And and I'm sure we'd all love to hear. Thank you, Dave. Um, yeah, Yeah, so I think I'll probably go
1: back to my... I don't know, mid teens, um, going into sick form, we kind of all, you know, we partied. We, we were living in the countryside. So everyone, it was always like one person's parents would drive us, drop us somewhere in the middle of nowhere. We'd all get hammered and then somebody else's parents would, or them would come pick us up at, I don't know, three in the morning, whatever it was. And, um, and, and it was, I don't know. I just, I remember the very first party we held and I guess we must've been, I don't know, 15, I don't know, 16 maybe. Um, and, uh, it was three of us girls who kind of held it in a village hall <laughs> and everybody, I think our whole year came and, and it was the first opportunity that people had to, to drink. I think it was probably for most of them the first time they'd had a drink and. uh And I just, they were just like these bodies lying around. And I was just like, cause I was down on the door. So I wasn't really drinking. I I hadn't had a drink and, uh, and I was just wandering around. I was just like, what has happened? Like people are passed out everywhere. And obviously it was like the first time they'd, they'd drunk and they were drinking, like necking it back from like bottles that they'd stolen from their parents, drinks, cabinets and, it was just like, wow, this is, and, and it kind of, it really was a turn off for me actually. And, and I thought, oh, I don't want to be doing that. But you know, just the way things were, that was, that was life, wasn't it? You just drink was part of growing up and leaving home. And that's what you did when you weren't working or at uni or whatever and anyway so I went off to um art school and yeah I guess it was the same culture um I I got together with with this guy and um and he he would buy these I don't know if you remember though Val Policella used to come in these like gargantuan bottles Mm -hmm. it was like huge and yeah. I think it was like probably I don't know, three times the size of a normal um wine bottle. Yeah. And uh and, and we used to drink that. And so I'd gone from just like maybe, you know, drinking a little bit at the weekends. I was always the designate, designated driver at when I was when we were at school. So I didn't drink that much. But then kind of at art school, it was just like it seemed to be quantity over quality. We didn't care what it tasted like. And and so it wasn't and because everyone was doing it, it wasn't something you kind of thought about other than when you felt really bad the next, the next day. Um, but you just kind of got uh, recovered as quickly as possible, ready to, to go the next time. And, um, and then, um, after art school, I moved up to Southwest Scotland to, um, a small town called Lockerbie. And, and part of the reason for that was like, London in the mid 80s, being a young woman was, well, I guess it maybe hasn't changed that much now. But it was really hard. You know, you were, you were, you were vulnerable. And, you know, I was living in All Saints Road, which was like, you know, the kind of hub, the epicenter of um where people bought their drugs. And it was, you know, it was just really, everything felt really, um, edgy and like you were living on your nerves the whole time and I just I got to the point and I think I'm I my brain is kind of hyper sensitive to stuff and so I just at the end of art school which I'd loved I'd loved doing that but it was it was all the other stuff and I was just like okay I I think I'm just I just I just need to get out of London and I just I need quiet and uh we we'd done um uh, we we took a performance up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and uh, and we just decided to stay up there. Some friends of ours had just moved up; they had a little baby, and we just thought, yeah, why not? Let's just move to the middle of nowhere. Mm. <laughs> and uh, and so to start, we were we had this we were renting this little cottage in like this amazing landscape, and um, Lockerbie was just up the road, and and we were we sort of started making um sculptures and doing sculpture commissions and just kind of living living on our wits and you know living an artistic life and kind of in those days artists mostly lived on the dole and then they brought in this scheme called the enterprise allowance scheme which um gave you the kind of sense of doing what you do as a business. And that was the kind of first time that I, I began to think of art and business kind of under the same umbrella. And so we started to sort of make, make work, do commissions. um, And we bought, um we'd done, <laughs> we'd done a commission, which was um these giant trolls, <laughs> 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 which was kind of, a, it was, there was a, this kind of phase where, um, all of these like museums suddenly wanted like life size people and animals and kind of weird sort of fantasy creatures. And so we were carving these trolls and animals and stuff for um I think it was some kind of theme park somewhere up in Aberdeen. And uh the this particular commission was for seven thousand pounds. And when we came back to Lockerbie, we were driving through, and we passed this church, and there was this, a little sign on the door, and it said um uh, "Church for sale, seven thousand pounds." And we were like, "Oh, we've got that money. We could buy the church." You know, not thinking this church is is a listed building. It's got a massive roof. It's got a hundred foot spire. We were like, "Yeah, great, great space. We can live in it. We can make work in it." And, uh, so we were still living in the cottage and, um, and had turned it into a, a sculpture studio and it was the end of 1988. It was December, it was actually December the 21st. And I remember sitting in the cottage and, um, we got, a. I know I I was sitting I was um watching telly just some random program and I heard this thunderclap. and I was like that's weird this I don't it's not raining and I went and looked out of the window and it's like there was no lightning or anything and just like oh maybe I just imagined it and then my landlady called on the landline we didn't have mobile bars then um and she said are you okay and I was like yeah what's happened and she said you needed to go and turn on the news, and uh, so we did. And that was when we found out that um, Pan Am—well, we didn't know which plane it was—but that a plane had been blown up out of the sky above us. And yeah, all hell rained down. And so we kind of looked out of the window, and then we could see like the sky was orange, and the road below us, which was the main road going up into Scotland, was completely solid there was like no traffic it was going anywhere um and then like journalists were sort of running up to our door even though we were in the middle of nowhere saying you know can we can we use your landline because all the landlines were down and and i couldn't get through to my parents no one could get through to us for ages and it was just it was chaos and terrifying and and really all that we knew we could hear the helicopters going overhead, but we were just sitting watching television like the rest of the world. Um, and we just sat up all night waiting to see what, what was outside when we, when, when it went light and, and it was, yeah, it was pretty horrendous. We, we walked into to Lockerbie and there were bits of plane everywhere and carnage and, you know you just didn't look up into the trees you just kept walking and and we just had this need to kind of be with other people and and so we went to the local pub which had opened its doors in the morning um just so people could just kind of gather and and be together because you know very quickly it was you know all the emergency emergency services had come but you know it was too late you know there was nothing anyone could do because everyone on the plane had died and also 11 people on the ground and so it was sort of you know one of those kind of horrendous terrible things that happens and and then you sort of slowly begin to kind of move forward again and and what i found was that i i don't know i had this weird thing where because i hadn't lost anybody i wasn't injured i felt that i didn't have a right to feel the trauma of that event and and so i just sort of got on with it and and i guess suppressed it and it's only you know these days that you 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 know like when 911 happened and you know when things have happened in london like terrible things and you see how important it is for you know people to move in and 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 be there with sort of counseling services and for anybody that has witnessed or experienced an event like that and but you know then it was you know you didn't even really go to therapy or you know it just wasn't something that was part of our culture and and I I know they did offer service counseling services for the family members who who'd lost people but anybody else, you know, you just kind of got on with it. And, and, and so sort of fast forward to a few years later, and I, I was, uh, I would got into um, TV documentary making, and I was doing um, a series, directing a series on terminal illness for Channel 4. And as part of that, they realized that it was, you know, it was going to be a pretty traumatic um series to make, you know, we were with families, as their loved ones were dying. And, you know, that was over a period of three years. And, and so they offered us, um, therapy. Um, and, and what we all found was that it wasn't the experience, the, the sort of current experience that we were going through that came up. It was baggage from the past. And that was the first kind of inkling I had that perhaps what had happened in Lockerbie had had a, a much more profound effect on me than I'd, and I'd realized. And so I went through the therapy and I, and lots of things kind of sort of fell apart, um, in my sort of personal life. And, you know, just I, I, even with the therapy, I don't think that I really understood what trauma does to you until again, another few years later. And I was making a documentary on post-traumatic stress in, in soldiers. And, uh, we'd gone to, to interview a psychiatrist at, uh, the Priory and, and he had, um, was pioneering, um, a technique in the UK. It was already being used in the U S called EMDR. And it was a way of, um, helping people to unwind the, the trauma of, of, well, for the, for these soldiers, for the impact of, of war, um, um, and it does it in in this way that's it it seems similar to hypnotherapy but it works in a slightly different way and and when he was talking about how ptsd kind of affects the brain i was like i think that might be what i've got and so then i went to go and get help specifically for that and and so i guess by then i was in my late 30s and i then i kind of I went into a sort of 10 year period of learning about all of this stuff and just kind of chasing every kind of alternative therapy and just learning everything. And I became a coach. And, um, yeah, I was just, I was just fascinated by how the mind works and, and how the brain works and, and how mine was, you know, I was, you know, I, I ate pretty healthily. I exercised. I was doing what I thought I could do under what, everything that I'd learned. We know much more now than we did then. Um, but you know, I was still struggling. I was still, I was still getting really depressed. I was still getting really anxious. It wasn't anxiety wasn't anything that anyone talked about then again. It was so you were kind of, you just felt like you were on your own and it really didn't feel like the therapy had worked that much. Coaching was much more. I felt it was much more powerful for me at that time because it felt like, okay, so what's happened has happened. I've done as much work I feel that I can about what's happened in the past, but, but what do I do now moving forward? And, and so I felt that coaching was a really, um, both helping other people with coaching and, and having it done myself. Cause you know, if you're training to be a coach, then you have to have coaching too. And, and so I felt like that's. Okay. So how can I move forward? And, and I guess the drinking was something that I was still doing, but I was beginning to be more aware of, hmm, this doesn't seem like it's really having a great effect on me. And something that I had, um, noticed when, um, or understood when we were doing the documentary series on terminal illness was, um, one of the episodes that I was uh, directing was, um, uh, comparing heart disease and cancer and the care that you get. So I, I was doing a lot of research around cancer and, and heart disease and what caused it. And, and I was like, so there's all of this stuff around smoking and heart disease and cancer. Why is no one talking about alcohol? Because all the evidence was showing that actually that was much more greatly implicated in those diseases than even smoking was. And, uh, and that, so this was, that was probably 20 years ago. And I I remember thinking then, I reckon in 10 years time, everyone is going to come to this realization and they're going to, you know, do like a massive education program around alcohol. It'll end up being like smoking. It, you know, everyone, it, it there'll be this huge global shift. And just as everyone gave up smoking, like whole countries who kind of were almost defined by smoking, like, you know, I don't know, Italy or Ireland or, you know, you just, you would go to those countries and they, everybody smoked and, and within a few years, everybody stopped or most people stopped. And, and I thought, wow, that's, that's a huge thing that education can do and, and like really you know, people standing up to the the cigarette industry and tobacco industry. And and I reckoned, well, you know, that's what's going to happen with alcohol. But roll on 20 years and, you know, <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> most of that a,
1: hasn't changed. No,
0: but I think it's a different thing, right? Because if you um, say to someone you're giving up smoking, they, they pat you on the back. But if you say that you're not drinking, you get hauled over the coals a lot of the time. And in fact, just before... I came into to you. Um, someone shared, uh, interview with Alan Carr on, um, the, uh, James Corden was on there. He was trying to lose a bit of weight and said he wasn't drinking. And the reaction from Alan was like ridiculous. It's what we all have, you know, like, Oh, you're boring. What's the matter with you and stuff? And there's a difference. And that's why we need to keep on banging the drum. And it's a slow process because of the amount of money involved, you know, but I- I'm interested actually because when, um, Lockerbie happened, it really shook the world, you know, and, and I remember it really, re- really vividly, right? A bit like 9-11 when I, I was working in London and, um, doing some flooring in some student accommodation. And I remember it was on their telly and I thought they were watching a film. And I actually said, what film's this? And they said, it's live and, and it changed the world. And in a way, with Lockerbie as well, you're sitting there in your lovely, cosy cottage on a spin of a coin. What you thought could have been the thunderclap was the Lockerbie. It was devastating, you know, but to live down the road. Did that, like, with your drinking, did you use drinking as a coping mechanism after that? Um, Where was you with your drinking? Because we... It's, we we use it as a coping strategy, don't we? Um, drinking and and how was it after that? Was that supporting you in in what you'd experienced?
1: I think it was it was just so part and parcel of of life, drinking. You know, it wasn't you, it you didn't kind of think about it. So you weren't mm. so I, I wasn't ever aware that I was drinking more. You know, we were just drinking a lot. And mm. and I think when it was only when I gave up. Up that I realized what I was masking and, and, you know, because I was numbing myself, you know, it was like the thing with PTSD is what another psychiatrist said was that it's, it's usually a number of traumas and it might be kind of little T traumas or big T traumas, but it's, it's usually the kind of a pile up of traumas over years that, that, that creates post-traumatic stress disorder although i i i'm sure it can happen in a kind of one massive event too but but i think that you know with a kind of series of little traumas and big traumas in my life i just masked it Mm. and and it was a kind of way of numbing and 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 because it was so part of the culture it was i wasn't forced to kind of think oh i'm doing something like really naughty here or I'm doing something really bad, or I'm doing something different. It was just what everyone else was doing. And, um, and I wasn't secretly drinking, or I wasn't drinking kind of inordinate amounts of like bottles of whiskey or anything. It was, it was, you know, I guess what they call now, I don't know what gray area drinking or social drinking. But, you know, when you're drinking I guess later on it was probably I was probably drinking half a bottle of wine a night and you know when when I told people that after I'd given up some people would go well that's not very much yeah and other people would go oh my god that's so much no wonder you needed Mm. to give up so you know it's all kind of from wherever anyone else is standing yeah how much you're drinking but I think that yes definitely the the mask it was definitely masking um it was a it was the way of numbing
0: i really really hear you when you say a number of events in your life can build up to something much better because there can be a running theme can't there and i know what my running theme was was rejection because my as everyone's heard my mum upped and went when i was 14 but then I was in a serious relationship and that happened again. I was let, and then something else. And then you began to create this story in your life of constant rejection. Then what's wrong with me? And then you numb that out. And also alcohol is progressive, isn't it? You, you, you drink more than more. Um, and a lot of people I work with, they, they say, you know, I can drink up to a bottle of wine a night and I'm like the doctor. Well, Okay, is that actually true? Do you ever think I'll have one more out of the second bottle because that one's not quite enough? And quite often they go, Yeah, actually. And before long you're you're down in two bottles, so it's progressive, you know, and you can fall easily into that trap because of you know, you the tolerance level goes up. And then you've got a real problem. But I do also say that it's not about the quantity. It's about how it makes you feel. You know, I know people who drink two glasses with dinner and they feel anxious. They, they don't sleep properly. They can't be bothered with the kids at bedtime. And, you know, so it's not about the amount. It's about how it makes you feel.
1: Yeah. And that was definitely, I was definitely feeling this for, for as long as I could think of, I could remember, I would wake up with a sense of dread and a sort of slight feeling of guilt around or i'd be like oh how much how many glasses of wine did i have last night and and even though it wasn't you know like huge amounts it was just like it just wasn't it just didn't feel right it didn't mm. sit right with me and it was definitely having um an a, the impact of anxiety and, and, you know, and then kind of as it progressed through my forties, I was obviously, you know, what I didn't, didn't know then, no one talked about it then was perimenopausal. So it, its effects were having, were kind of exacerbated by, by perimenopause. And, and I started getting like the most horrendous, um, migraines, like for about eight years. And, and then I just. I just got to the point where I was like, okay, I can't, I really can't do this. I can't be menopausal and be drinking and thank God for dry January, which I think was probably in, it's one of its earliest years. And I just woke up on a a new year's day one, 2017. And I just thought, yeah, I'm going to do dry, dry January. And that was it that once I'm very kind of binary in my thinking uh, and I was just like, that's, it, that's it. I'm done. And I did think, well, I'll see how I'm getting on by the end of January, but by the, I'd already kind of made that decision. It was just yeah. like, I just switched off the, the button and, and that was it. And, and it was then that I, and this is something I, you know, I'd, I, I kind of loathe to talk about this because I don't want people to kind of think, oh my God, you know, when I give up, it's going to be like this whole kind of well of stuff then pours out. But, you know, how long can you mask if there is stuff, how long can you mask for? And, and, and so, you know, it it was a process of healing, but it was painful because there was nowhere to run. Mm. And it was just like all of those feelings that had been numbed for, for decades they were there, like right in front of me, and I was like, "Okay, so I can't numb this anymore. I can't run from it anymore. I just have to go through it and so I did and and it was really hard because what that was five and a half years ago, there wasn't this idea, this concept of being sober and and sobriety as as something that was kind of normalized. it was either you're an alcoholic and you go to AA or you're just a normal drinker. Mm. Um Whereas I knew that this didn't feel right for me. It didn't, it wasn't making me feel healthy. I was, you know, I was doing all these other healthy things in my life, but I, yeah, I was still drinking. And so I knew that the culprit was that. <laughs> and so, so it was kind of a health thing. You know, I could see it in my face. I, I think I'd been, um, Filmed like in the December before I gave up. And I remember looking at the footage and I was just like, Oh my God, I looks, my face looks so puffy. And, and, uh, and I thought, well, kind well, of we? let's, let's use vanity to kind of help me, <laughs> you know, use whatever we can to, to, um, switch off the, the alcohol. And, and so once I'd made that decision, it was like, okay, right, we're going to do this and you know, face whatever comes up. Um, But because it was, wasn't the world that it is now with like people like you who, who've been such champions for people who are wanting to give up drinking and, and trying to kind of, you know, get themselves across the line and then have that support in the months and and years afterwards, which is, you know, a lot, so much of it is around kind of emotional support and helping them to sort of look at things in their past that they'd managed to kind of brush under the, the rug. Um, and so, yeah, so it was a very difficult, different time. It was, you know, no one else was that I knew was not drinking. So every time I'd go out, it was, you know, oh, go on, have one, have one, gonna treat yourself. Or, um, you know, someone would say to me, Oh, well, when you start drinking again, let's go out. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of even, so all of your own thinking of like, Oh my God, you know, I was, a really I'm a shy person, I'm an introverted person. Alcohol had been the thing that had really helped me come out of myself and and be some kind of a social being. And suddenly I'd taken that away from myself. So here I was, back being my shy, introverted self with nowhere to hide, and no one else being sober as well. So it was um you know, I, I felt like I've just got to kind of knuckle down and get kind of get through it. And, but I, I've just been so thrilled to see how things have changed over the last few years, and and people like you and Emily Ciphers and Janie e. Lee Grace, and all of this kind of whole landscape of people who are who are out there supporting one another, um, and 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 saying, you know, this is something that you can do and, and, and you can, you can kind of get through the things that you, you used, you used alcohol to mask. You can actually mm. face those things and then you can build a, a life that is is way more healthy on every level.
0: Absolutely. And what's interesting is when you said you got up on New Year's day and you thought that's it. And you just stopped and you're binary in your thinking, right? Um, I think it was Annie Grace's dad that did that and they call it um spontaneous sobriety, right? Where you just get up and you go, I'm done. That's it. I personally think it happens a lot before that. Like a lot goes on in your mind, right? It's the questions you ask yourself, the mornings you wake up um regretting things, the conversations you whisper in your head, I've got to do something about this, but you're not quite ready. I know this because that's what happened to me. Because I got up on January the seventh, twenty nineteen and I was done, right? But then when I explored that, it's actually been going on for months and months and months where I was sick of it but I wasn't ready, you know. And this is why it's so important to have these conversations because if there's one person who hears this podcast and they relate to it, I'm sure actually thousands will relate to you, it will plant the seed in their head. And it might not be today or tomorrow that they stop, but it could be six months or a year down the line because quite often people say to me, I've heard that podcast with Lou Hamilton, it will be, and it changed everything for me. You know, And it's so important to... To think actually, you're not ready yet, but you can explore that idea, you know. And it's when you start to explore, the magic can happen, you know, because your brain's a, a really, really incredible bit of kit, you know, and, and it can work when, when you're not even thinking, you know. And even like now, coming up to the Christmas period, it's people, they're going to be, uh, well, I won't give up, um, is Christmas coming up uh, and oh yeah and there's dry Jan but you know what I always say to people if if you can entertain the idea of having that period over Christmas without drinking you've done a massive piece of the journey there you know and then you've got dry Jan I always do a dry Jan Sober Dave campaign I, I organize groups of people I think last year there was 300 people in my groups and They'll egg each other on, and so you could start January the first actually being sober for a few weeks, you know. So it's these conversations that can can start a whole new way. And and it sounds to me when you started that um in two thousand seventeen, everything's changed for you.
1: Yeah, and and I and I think what your point is really important, and I, and I want to kind of. To, to kind of illustrate that because you're absolutely right. As I say, it was like, it felt really binary and it was like, okay, now this is, this is the time. This is it. I stopped. But as you say, there had been times in the couple of years prior to that, maybe even longer where. You know, those thoughts of like, I really shouldn't be drinking. This isn't helping me. This is like not helpful. You know, arguments happen when you're drinking, you know, all of these kind of unhealthy things that happen around drinking. And, and I had actually done a couple of times when I'd not drunk for a few months. And I think that's really important to talk about because when people give up and then like something happens and they like, say, go back to the booze, it's not, you don't have to feel like you're a failure. It's just like, okay, well, that was a trial run. You know, you can do it. You know, you can not drink. So try it again when you're ready again. And and so I think that that is really important to say that because it, you know, even though it feel, it seems like it was very binary to me, it actually, as you said, was, was as a result of, of a few years of exploring, um, mm. and trying in different ways. Um, you know, I tried to drink less. That didn't work for me. I'm not a moderate. <laughs> yeah. I'm an all or nothing person. And, yeah. um, so that didn't work for me. So I, you know, I couldn't, there wasn't, any, wasn't the, the phrase mindful drinking then. Mm. Um, that wasn't something I could do.
0: It's an interesting conversation there because to some people, half a bottle of wine is moderate. To me, like I could never share a bottle of wine. But as I said at the beginning, it's all relative to the person. We've all got our own relationship with alcohol and that's so important to, you know, it's our own bespoke relationship. So when I work with people, say you drank one bottle and someone else drank, I don't look at it as the same. I look at it as, you know, what? how does that make you feel? Why do you want to stop? Have you tried before? Um, what's your background? And once you get underneath it all, you can form a profile of someone and, and realize actually for you, half a bottle of wine is too much. Well, it's too much anyway. But it's to, you know, there's this narrative that goes around in society that, you know, that's, that's, you're a lightweight and you haven't got a problem, Lou. What are you, what, what are you worried about? you know, because you're not passing out every night on the sofa with catching flies, you know what I mean? And this is why there's so much pressure when we give up, isn't it? It's it's like when people justify your drinking based on their drinking, they relate it to what they drink or what others drink, and, and it's wrong. But did you come up against anything? Um You know, dry January is a really, really good period of time to actually use that as an excuse when you're going out uh, and but after that february march april did you come up against any resistance or was you that strong-minded that you you didn't care how did you deal with that
1: i didn't have resistance in myself there was definitely kind of comments and you know like it was just like you're there was a sense that you're the boring one yeah it's like you know Oh, you're not actually as fun as when you're drinking. And that's a hard thing to take, you know, especially as, you know, I'd used alcohol to be more fun. Mm. (laughs) And so, you know, I was being told the kind of the truth that the the truth that I had in my mind was I'm only fun if I have a drink. Yeah, Um, And so here I am faced with the kind of oh, boring me. Not laced with, with alcohol. And then I kind of did a double whammy on myself because I then, um, I think probably two months after giving up the booze, I, I, uh, became vegan. So like I was like totally in the ostracized. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: yeah. And, and again, back then, you know, being vegan was really hard and, and considered really weird. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that in the last five years, so much around alcohol and and um being vegan all of that stuff has has changed you know the world's become much more open to mm. people trying to live in a way that is that feels good for them and you know when you were saying about the how much alcohol is too much or not enough and what i knew was that it had a grip on me mm. and you know, whether that was two glasses or half a bottle or a bottle or whatever the amount is, when you know that it has a grip on you, mm. you know it's not doing you any good.
0: That's a really and I was, brilliant and I was, point. You- That's a brilliant point. It, and this is the whole thing around grey area drinking, right? It's like, can you take or leave your drinking? And when when people say, well, yeah, of course I can. And I say, so you could give up today and it wouldn't bother you. Well, I don't know about that. And that's when you know it's got a grip on you because it's present in your life, right? Uh, and, and for a lot of people, they think about it or they negotiate that conversation quite often. You know, shall I have a glass of wine tonight? Or oh, I had half a bottle last night. I shouldn't really, but you know what? I've had a bit of good news today or, or oh, I've had a crap email from my boss. And so you negotiate that conversation, and, and your arms twisted so easily. Honestly, and that's why I say a lot of the time, drinking in, no drinking in a week is virtually impossible when you've got some kind of reliant relationship on alcohol. Because you get to Wednesday, and you're already giving yourself pat on the back. You haven't drunk Monday and Tuesday. So, <laughs> So Wednesday, well, the weekend
1: like, starts Wednesday, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah,
0: and then you have to start all over again on next Monday, yeah. and then it goes round and round and round. But it's also right what you say about um, nowadays. There's so much more support. Even when I gave up, it it was four years ago, this January, and there was AA. And do you know what? I'm a lot more open minded now about it, but and and I probably believe that I went to the wrong meetings at the time because it was very judgy. I don't like being told what to do uh, as well. And I felt like that's what was going on there. And so I went down a different route. But there's so much support, you know, like what we do and and listening to podcasts and a lot of quick lit out there now. I won't plug my book, but I just have. We, uh, and you've got a book as well, <laughs> haven't you? We can talk about that in the end. But, you know, there's so many sort of um, sources of support that would serve the person so like earlier you said emily cyphers you know there's so so many different people that you can tune into and go do you know what i like the way they talk that's yeah. my language yeah. it's a love language isn't it you know yeah and that's what's so brilliant about it and i think we all try to make it more open and accepted now that actually it's however you want to look at it um lifestyle change or or whatever works there as well for me i had to give up drinking because um I, I told someone yesterday, actually, about how much my blood pressure was when I was drinking, and they, they said, I don't know how you, you was alive. Just that one thing on top of being on antidepressants, um, reflux medication, cholesterol medication, you know, all this stuff that I was put into my body. And now I don't put any of it in there. And it's not just stopping the drinking. It's the knock-on effect it has for everything else. Last old changes like you, you became vegan. And you're more mindful of your diet and your exercise. And you have more energy, so you're more positive. And, you know, there's so many benefits other than the labels we think there are. Like, well, I could lose weight or, you know. it's it's just you know I don't know a single person that regrets being sober (laughs) that's so true And
1: and there are there are certain things that can really help so I've so I have kind of painted a slightly sort of negative picture in terms of like having to face your demons when you when you give up and but you know there are things that that sort of helped sort of to, to go through the transition. Definitely, you know, having, having support, um, that is now widely available. Um, but also little things like, you know, I would keep my ritual. So if I, you know, I'd always have a glass of wine at six o'clock when I started cooking. So I kept my glass And I just put something else in it. So I I mean, in more recent times, kombucha, there wasn't, there didn't, kombucha didn't exist back then. But, um, you know, I would find something that kind of felt sort of ritualistic. So I still had the glass. I still, if I have a kombucha out when I'm, when I'm out now, I'll ask for it in a champagne glass Mm. because I'm like, why not? Yeah. (laughs) you know have it kind of make give you the feel of like celebration but it's just a different liquid inside and you know like last night we were out there were 12 of us women entrepreneurs three of us were not drinking that's Mm. that's a quarter of the group which is like huge and that's so different from what it would have been four years ago and you know and we were I don't know we had a pretend gin and tonic um whatever you you know alcohol-free gin and tonic and then we were back on kind of i don't know sparkling water in a wine glass and uh and then the other really great thing that happened as a result of giving up drinking as well as being able to get on top of my menopausal symptoms and like take a natural approach to that and come through with like Really sort of getting on top of all of those symptoms. It, it's such, and I don't think it's talked about enough alcohol and, and menopause. And I think that, you know, if you, if, if you, if you need a reason and you're going through menopause and you want to give up drinking, that is a really, really good reason. Yeah. And, and then as a result of that, what happened for me was just, I just became so incredibly creative and it just felt like this creativity was just like, Pouring out of every orifice. (laughs) I was just, I was writing, I was painting, I was just doing so much creative work. And it just felt like suddenly I got into my flow. And this was at a time where, you know, I'd, then I was kind of turning 50. My kids were leaving. My granny had, had died. I was very close to her. So I was grieving a very kind of difficult, kind of tumultuous time, but what being alcohol free gave me was this sort of sense of freedom and possibility rather than, Oh, my life has kind of ended as it, mm. you know, everything that I knew it to be was kind of all over. And now I've just got you know, like the next however long ahead of me, you know, who am I? What am I about? Instead, it felt like, wow, this is brilliant. I'm, my kids are flying the nest and I can fly too. And uh, and so it it gave me a sense of liberation.
0: I feel inspired myself by that, uh, and it's true, right? Because people go, oh, it's it's not about what you're losing; it's about what you're gaining, right? Like for me, everything's changed in my life. You know, my productivity, my clarity, my drive for doing new things. You know, because I I look at it like I spend my life with blinkers on looking at the floor going my life is over for for decades you know and then on January the 7th I took the blinkers off looked up and looked around me and thought god this is actually amazing and that's what encouraged me to carry on that I was seeing the sights of the world you know and it is all about what you're gaining you know, in so many, I could list probably 50 things, you know, like when you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and you think, oh, I, I look well rested and I feel positive and, oh, I'm going to do this today and I feel excited about it rather than going through the whole morning thinking, how do I apologize to that person I text last night or how do I make it my partner that I call them this or the whole mental health conversation, the physical health conversation. Conversation, and it's interesting what you say about education because I've learned so much about what alcohol does to the body as well. And when I was drinking, I thought, "Oh, my liver is knackered because I might have backache or something." But now I know so much more about the arteries, you know, the, the even the esophagus and the lungs how they work with alcohol, and everything is bad. I was at a charity event, right? for cancer uh, a couple of years ago. And there were a lot of celebrities there. And after, um Beverly Craven was playing live and it was a lovely event. But afterwards there was a free bar, right? And everyone was throwing the wine back. And I was standing there. I wasn't being judgmental then, but afterwards I was like, this is crazy. This is like being at a lung cancer event and and they're offering free fags at the end exactly it was really eye opening actually so i i do believe that education is everything and there's so much out there so where are you now five years well coming up to six actually aren't you Mm, yeah what what are you up to yeah Yeah, see (laughs) (laughs) where are you with your life now what are you up to
1: Yeah, it's really good. I, I, so I started my podcast, Brave New Girl. Um, and that came out of a book that I guess really came out of, of giving up drinking. It was, it's called Brave New Girl, How to Be Fearless. And it was this, these little drawings of this character who, was fearless and and she you know if she didn't know how to do something she'd invent a way and and I thought at the time it was you know my kids were going out into the world maybe this little character was to sort of help them be brave as they went out into the world but looking back I think it was also for me
0: yeah and
1: uh and then um and then I wrote another coaching book called Fearless um, which again was me kind of, that was me going facing all the things that came up as a result of uh, having nowhere to hide anymore, nothing to numb me. And so that book came out of that. And then Um, I decided to start the podcast because I thought, well, how can I extend this kind of whole idea of Brave New Girl? And and I thought, well, let's, let's interview real life Brave New Girls. And, you know, using my background as documentary filmmaker, um, I started the podcast and that's, that's grown. I've had the most amazing women come on and, and talk about their lives, about how they've become fearless, how they've Overcome adversity, the challenges they've gone through, how they've discovered how to be courageous in their lives. And, and then I was just like, well, I'm giving a voice. I'm giving a platform to these women's voices, but how can I help people more? And then I thought, okay, so if I created a podcast guest agency, then I can help people get onto other people's podcasts and, and I can really champion those people who are well what, in whatever walk of life they're trying to have a positive impact, either on the health of people or on the health of the planet and and so that's how my my business was formed and and so yeah, I guess all of those things came out as a result of of me stepping away from something that was holding me back
0: yeah, and uh, when you wrote your book. Was that a really cathartic experience for you as well?
1: Yeah, I think, well, definitely drawing the first book, Breaking Your Girl, and then writing Fearless, because I think you you tend to write what you go through yourself. And so kind of my exploration of fearing less, of learning to fear less, and I'd realised how fearful I had been all my life, and probably that's why I'd used alcohol yeah to to cover up the fear so yeah so I think everything comes from your experience doesn't it and and creativity most certainly does and and so exploring all of those things through words and images and now through audio is all part of that process
0: yeah I, I, I mean when I record these podcasts as people know I don't really say a lot but like my brain's constantly ticking over I learn a lot from these myself it's so cathartic for me to to hear people's stories like yourself and you know when when you talk about the menopause as well most of my clients are women of a certain age you know in their 40s and they're going through menopause and it's a big conversation we've got um um people like kate roham out there that talks a lot about menopause davina mccall you know, all these people now, it's a huge conversation and it's really important because alcohol and menopause are like chalk and cheese. They don't, they don't mix at they all. They really don't mix. No. So if you can address it before the perimenopausal stage and that, it gives you a massive boost of a chance to deal with it naturally. You know, yeah. Lou, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. I can tell you're a pro because you've um, done this podcast brilliantly and I'm sure that there'll be a lot of people that listen to it and relate to you uh, and get a lot from it. Where can they find you, your book, your podcast? What can they do?
1: Yep, so you can listen to the podcast Brave New Girl um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram. Please come and say hello. I'm brave underscore new girl and my podcast guest agency is www.bravenewgirlmedia.com so come and say hi wherever
0: yeah Uh, and and I'll put all that in the show notes as well um thank you so much for joining me today and congratulations on your nearly six years of sobriety as well
1: thank you Dave keep up the great work it's you're doing brilliant things and helping so
0: many people thank you so much Lou have a great day I really hope you enjoyed today's episode of One For The Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. Don't forget you can also order a copy of my number one best-selling book, One For The Road. It's full of helpful and useful tips to help you stop drinking. You can order it today off Amazon. You can also find me for extra support on my Instagram account, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.